Welcome to Quarter Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. All right, first week is live from vacation. (laughs) Where are you coming to us from, sir? Coming to you live from vacation at Arizona. Very dedicated, making the filming at 6.50 a.m., making sure that you get the best opinions. Even when we're on vacation, we don't stop. You gonna go see uh, CP3, Aiden, so it's up? Honestly, it's the best show in town. I'm gonna probably try to catch one of those games and see them live. There were Are one they allowing people? Teams. Ooh, that's a good question. I have to see. I think they might actually. This might be one of the few places you can catch a game. Well, you should definitely do that if you're there. 100%. Very fun team to watch this year. All right, well, the first week is in the books, and like every week, we're going to start off with the latest on the James Harden front. <laughs> That's a constant. James Harden is a storyline that is ever-evolving. The thing with him is he's just so maddening. He's a guy that, on paper, you look at his numbers, how can you not want a guy like that on your team? The guy literally produces – more consistently than almost anyone else in the NBA. He's he's going to get you 30 points seemingly, but it's all the other stuff that comes along with him, all the -the off-the-court drama, the question to commitment and conditioning and defense. It's just maddening. As a team, do you chalk up the assets that the Rockets are asking for? Rumors are saying that the Rockets are looking for two first-round picks and a young star to part with James Harden, which – I can understand from their perspective why they'd want that. The guy right now is averaging 39 points, five rebounds, 12.5 assists with a PER right now that would be first in the NBA at 41.22. I don't think that he could keep that up all year because that would be unheard of. But, I mean, the guy is killing it right now despite all of the drama. If you're a team that is looking to trade for James Harden, do you just suck it up and fork over the picks? Yeah, you know, I – when we first started talking about James Harden was saying this guy needs to get his act together. He needs to stop going to so many strip clubs. He needs to stop partying with rappers. Um, but now I'm seeing his stat line. And if you think about uh, Tiger Woods, when he went through his entire scandal, it took him a few years to get back to where he was before he was Tiger again. However, when he was partying and with a bunch of random women, he was killing it on the golf course. So now I completely flip sides. I think that James Harden should have, if you've ever watched The Rock work out, he has a traveling gym with him. I think James Harden should have a traveling strip club with him everywhere he goes. I think there should be <laughs> one stand-in rapper for every single game that he has. And James, they should lessen the commute for, so that he doesn't have to fly to Vegas or anything like that. He should just have a rotation of strippers and bottle service at every single juncture where he goes. They can keep them tested for the coronavirus pandemic to make sure that they're all clean and quarantined. Um, but he should, similar to LeBron James taking care of his body, James Harden should be taking care of his stripper status and just have people <laughs> rotating in this uh, like paradise park that travels with him. See, the thing is, we've actually seen something like this one time before where the coach basically just acknowledged, like, hey, like, this player is not your typical player. Most players that were to do this kind of activity would probably be doing horrible. But if you're still performing during the games, then I guess you kind of have to tolerate it. We heard Phil Jackson whenever he had Dennis Rodman, and they asked him, why do you allow Dennis Rodman to do these things? He basically just said, well, we haven't found anyone that could do Dennis Rodman's job better than Dennis Rodman. So 
I mean, as long as when we play the games, he plays the way he's supposed to, I guess we are willing to live with what he does off the court. But the counter argument to that, as Charles Barkley stated, is you can have your, you know, second or third best player maybe doing that. But can you really get by with your best player and leader of the team doing that? Yeah, he puts up the numbers, but does this translate to winning at all? It's hard to say. But another thing that's interesting about the Rockets, too, is something that I called really early. Um, I think on our first podcast, I had told everyone, Christian Wood, little known name, oh, is probably going to be the best. I'm telling you, this guy, I had, I had been saying it, this guy's going to be the best fit for a teammate that James Harden has literally ever had. And I'm not saying that Christian Wood is a better player than Chris Paul or Russell Westbrook is, but those players were not really great fits for James Harden. You put a ball-dominant guy like James Harden next to two other ball-dominant stars that basically take away from his greatest strengths, he never really had a complimentary big man that could do all the different things that Christian Wood can do. So far, he's averaging 27 points, eight rebounds, and he's knocking down threes at 57%. Not that I'm saying he's going to keep it up. He's not going to shoot 57% from three all year long. But the and fact that the guy's is averaging center, 50 from three. <laughs> it's, it's nuts. But the thing is, the spacing is excellent for them. He has never had a big man that gives him the options that Christian Wood does. Christian Wood can literally hit from everywhere. He has to be guarded all the way out to the three-point line, which opens up the driving lanes for Harden like crazy. So if James Harden were actually looking at his roster, he might actually have a competitive team right now. He probably should try to stay. If John Wall comes back and meshes with him and Christian Wood, they could potentially have a great lineup. I think that maybe James Harden should – stay put and see what he's got before he leaves for grass that he thinks is greener. He may have all the pieces he needs right here. Yeah. And the only other team I talked about that was added to James Harden list, Portland Trailblazers, CJ and James obviously had a great showdown with one another, each scoring 44 apiece. And I think clearly both would still be good on the Rockets versus on uh, the Trailblazers. So, I still think that, that is the most likely scenario, but I agree with you. I think James is going to start looking around and going, well, you know, if I'm scoring 39 points, 12 and a half assists, then they really can't keep me from doing what I want. And if that's the case, then this goes back to me just running the show here. Show. And if I run the show, I don't need to leave. So that's fine. Wood, <laughs> exactly. Come on, we're going yep. to the club. <laughs> I'm with you on that. So I think before we start getting into the promising starts to the season, I want to talk a little bit actually about who James Harden used to have on his team with Russell Westbrook and seeing the Wizards 0-4 on the season with Russell Westbrook, I think has had a triple-double in every single game. Bradley Beal has averaged over 28 points per game in every single game. What's not working for them? Honestly, I think it's the same thing that they've had issues with since last year. This team has no defensive ability. Unfortunately for them, they're undersized. They don't switch well laterally. They don't have a vocal leader on defense. I know that Russell Westbrook is a, is a plus defender, but he's probably the best defender they have on their team right now. And if your best defender is Russell Westbrook, I'm not saying that he's a bad defender, but they don't have a single other guy that can get stops. It's not like they're not putting up points. Russell Westbrook is the only player in NBA history that has started out every single game with his new team with a triple-double. 
and they're still losing games. It's not for lack of effort. It's not like Bradley Beal is underperforming with his addition. Seemingly, the other players are also benefiting on offense. They have great spacing and ball movement right now, it seems. They just cannot get stops on defense. And it seems like they've gone all in for trying to maximize offense and maximize Bradley Beal. But I just don't think that they have the personnel to consistently defend and get stops. And probably they're going to be facing deficits like this all year long. I think that they're going to lose a lot of games because of their defense. They don't make a move before the season's half. I think that this is a team destined for the lottery, and we could probably see Bradley Beal move somewhere before the season is over. Yeah, and the other wild part, just to go on that point, when you look at teams' games usually, their steals and turnovers are usually in the range of one another, and their most recent game to the Bulls, which the Bulls, one and three, the only win that they have is against the Wizards this past game. Uh, Six steals, six blocks, 19 turnovers from the Wizards. So they're averaging one steal per three turnovers a game. And that you just can't have that uh, being. Right. The other aspect of it, too, going on that turnover thing that you were mentioning, Russell Westbrook's stats have looked pretty great, but he has taken on more of that lead ball handler role. If you've watched their games, Bradley Beal is still a primary ball handler, but he has the ball in his hands much less, and they're kind of letting Russell Westbrook play a role of distributor. And although he is doing a pretty good job getting his 12.7 assists per game, he is turning it over 5.7 times per game. That's, that number would probably be top five in the league right now. So if he doesn't bring those turnovers down, they may have to look at maybe reducing his role as primary ball handler. You can't reasonably have your lead playmaker averaging 5.7 turnovers a game. That's just one guy averaging 5.7 turnovers. You're not even factoring in all the young guys that they have that they're trying to get acclimated. You just can't have that many mistakes, especially when you're not getting stops. You can't give the other team extra possessions when you're already not good at stopping other teams. Yeah, I agree. So moving on to some of the promising starts to the season. So last night before the game slate started, there were four undefeated teams. All of them were in the East. It was the Cavs, the Magic, the Pacers, and the Hawks. Starting with the Cavs, they did lose to the Knicks yesterday. But what did you think about the Cavs starting the season 3-0? and And do you think that they ha them having a chance at the playoffs is realistic? I've honestly been really surprised by Colin Sexton. I mean, this guy if he were to actually keep this up, would probably win most improved player. The guy's averaging 25 points a game right now. He still doesn't really show the distributor ability that you'd like to see from a point guard. He's only getting 3.8 assists. And that's always been a question about his game. Can he really be a facilitator? Can he really be a primary distributor up to this point? Hasn't really shown it, but he's giving you plenty of scoring punch. Definitely way more than I ever expected he'd give. So the fit that he has with Andre Drummond right now is seemingly working. These are players that were basically forgotten guys. People forgot about Andre Drummond after the Pistons shipped him away. Colin Sexton was a guy whose career was basically destined to turn into nothing in the Cavaliers system. But somehow, Colin Sexton and Andre Drummond are making it work. And Darius Garland, a player that I thought was a terrible selection for them based on positional fit, you basically draft another point guard after you just drafted a point guard. I really didn't see how that would work, but even Darius Garland is averaging 18.5 assists per game. The only thing with me is 
I think that they're catching a lot of teams by surprise right now. Probably a lot of teams thought the Cavaliers would be much worse than they are and aren't really playing them or taking them seriously in their game plan. I really do think they are going to be due to regress to the mean. I'm still picking them to miss the playoffs. I just can't see Colin Sexton averaging 25 points a game all year. And I think that's exactly what they would need from him to make the playoffs. I don't think that this is a team that's for real. It's probably just the case of an overachieving team that is catching teams by surprise right now. Yeah, I agree with that. I think given the parity in the NBA, teams are going to start putting it on uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers to go on with the season. But it's interesting to see a LeBron-less Cleveland doing well. I don't think that we've ever said that, uh, probably while we've been following basketball. So uh, that's definitely interesting to see. The rest of the team, though, I mean, it seems like they do have a solid roster overall. Uh, JaVale McGee averaging 10.5 points a game, starting to shoot threes. <laughs> he is averaging like a three per game at least at this point, which is This guy was hilarious. the not top 10. How is he doing this? He used to be it's... the guy that was known to always be on the shack, not top 10. Now he's actually making highlights for positive plays? Yeah, he's, uh, he's popping threes and he got – I think he only shot one three uh, against the Knicks, made it. Shot two threes against the 76ers, made one. One three against Detroit, made it. So he's, uh, he's finding his spot and, and splashing it in. So, I mean, if given his performance last year in the bubble with the Lakers, what he's doing now with a team that overall doesn't have a great roster, if he learns to shoot threes at a high percentage <laughs> – Teams are going to want to keep JaVale McGee around. So he's doing the right thing for his image. I would say even more so than Ben Simmons because at least he's shooting a three. That's true. Honestly, I would never have thought that I would say that I would trust JaVale McGee to knock down a jumper more than Ben Simmons. That's madness to me, but that's where we are right now. The thing with the Cavs is if you look at their stats as a whole, their three-point shooting across the board has been ridiculous. I don't think that that's possible for them to keep that up. I think that JaVale McGee is also benefiting a lot from people just leaving him completely wide open after having earned a reputation as a total non-shooter his whole career. He still has that slow hitch release on his shot. I think that if you just close out even a little bit, you can contest that shot. I think that maybe teams are going to stop leaving him completely wide open and just show out a little bit to discourage it. But I really find it hard to believe that this team as a whole is going to continue hitting threes at this clip. They're right now shooting 37% as a team. That's nuts. I I really don't see them keeping that up. Yeah. Well, on to the Orlando Magic. They are undefeated still with the resurgence of Fultz as well as with the resurgence or really development of Terrence Ross. So this one to me is interesting. And I think this team keeps going the way that they are. Fultz may be somebody who's in contention for most improved player of the year. Uh, Ross, if he is going to continue to score over 20 points a game in some of these games, is going to be in contention for most improved player of the year. Uh, Fultz had 18.3 points per game, 5.8 assists. I mean, this guy was completely broken, man, about a year ago. So to see him doing well now um, is – promising to see, especially when the 76ers seemingly could not do anything with him when he was on their team. But I 
think top to bottom, Orlando Magic have been doing really well as a balanced front. They still have Vucevic, who is an all-star. Aaron Gordon has not been doing well. So if he picks it up at least a little bit, then he'll be adding a bit more firepower to that team. Evan Fournier has also been scoring at a pretty high rate. Uh, and defensively, they've been keeping team scoring down. So Steve Clifford's been doing a great job over there. Overall, the team, I think, has like five people averaging over 10 points per game. So on any given night, any one of them can give it to you. So I see Orlando Magic being probably in the seventh or eighth seed, but probably making a run to the playoffs. So I, I honestly have been really surprised with the Magic, but I always say this about the Magic. This time of year, I'm always surprised that the Magic are kind of overachieving. Everybody always takes the Magic for granted as a team that's just going to roll over and lose. And to their credit, they play hard. They've been playing, I think, above their talent this year. Vucevic is always so sneakily good. He always quietly gets you 20 points. It's like you watch this guy play, you see the whole game, and you basically feel like he didn't do anything all game. And then you look at the stats, and it's like, oh, he had 20 and 10 somehow. But that's, that's Vucevic's game for you. But um, I agree. What they did with Markel Fultz was a very smart move by their organization. He was a player that was the number one pick at one point, was left for dead by the Sixers. The guy was apparently broken, had that blood flow issue where he couldn't get a jump shot to go from further than 15. And he still doesn't really show that he's, he's got that shooting ability all the way back to where we saw when he was in college yet. But he is attacking the basket with aggression. His handles look just as great as always. That herky-jerky, predictable pattern to his dribbling is still there. And you can see flashes of why he was the number one overall pick at one point. So I'm really happy to see him start to come around and figure it out. So that was a great pick for them. The thing is, it seems that right now they're getting the majority of their points from Terrence Ross, a guy who just turned 29 this year. I don't think that Terrence Ross is going to average 29 points a game or 21 points a game in his age 29 season, that would be unheard of for a player in their age 29 season to take the kind of leap that he has and sustain it. I've never heard of anyone else doing it in, in this late in their career. Usually if you're going to be a 20-point-a-game scorer, you're going to show it before your age 29 season. So I don't think that uh, we can really rely on Terrence Ross to continue with this level of production. I think he'll be a solid player for them, but you can't count on this guy to have an all-star level season if that's what you're counting on to make the playoffs, I don't think that you can count the Magic in, especially with how competitive the East has gotten this year. I think that at best, if they can get even more growth from Markel Fultz, get a little bit of improved production from Aaron Gordon, and Terrence Ross can be 75% of what he is right now, they could compete for the eight seed. But other than that, I really don't think that this 4-0 start changes my opinion on them missing the playoffs this year. Yeah. Well, on to, I think, the next two teams, which I think we both have making the playoffs, the Pacers and the Hawks. Starting with the Pacers, we have your Eastern Conference Player of the Week in DeMontis Sabonis. This, he's progressively gotten better each year and is slowly making the case for why the Pacers fleeced the thunder when they traded Paul George to get Sabonis and Oladipo because – these are really their two cornerstone pieces of the franchise and what they've been able to do developmentally with Sabonis. You kind of knew all the Nipo was already there, but Sabonis, I saw a picture of him in OKC versus how he looks now in the Pacers and it is not the same guy. Um, so he's putting up 
a double-double with 11 rebounds and over 20 points a game. And I would say the biggest weakness in his game currently is his free throws. He's shooting 60% for the year, 71% uh, for his career. But three-point percentage, 45.5%. Field goal percentage, 54%. So from the 50-40-90 club, the biggest weakness is that free throw percentage. But like I said, he's averaging uh, 21 points, 11 rebounds, 7.3 assists, which is five assists per game higher than what his career average is. Then you have Miles Turner with the Pacers, who's averaging five blocks per game. You expect that to come down. That is ridiculous. Um, so I think the Pacers are an exciting team, and hopefully if they stay healthy, that you could probably see them being the fifth, fourth, sixth seed going into uh, the playoffs. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I think that fourth to sixth seed is what sounds just about right for them. I've always just been really impressed with the Pacers' ability to seemingly always compete and stay relevant, even when they're not really getting top picks in their draft. They're not necessarily getting star free agents signing over there either. They just seem to figure it out. And I just can't believe that in that DeMontis Sabonis Victor Oladipo trade, that Sabonis would be the better piece. That's, that's madness to me. Sabonis is much younger and is greatly outproducing Oladipo. They have him in a new role this year. They're even putting him as a playmaker, which is something that's new for him, and he's thriving in it. He's averaging 7.2 assists. What he's doing right now on offense is seemingly what the Heat want Bam to do on offense, to have a fulcrum player in the middle who you can have pass out of the post but also be a threat to score from at least mid-range distance, and he's shown that he can even hit from three. It's honestly crazy to me that his free throw percentage is as low as it is, given how well he shoots from everywhere else. But I actually do think that he can sustain this kind of production all year long. I don't think that he's going to get you 7.2 assists per game. I think that teams are going to start trying to take that away from him because you got to take away something. But I really do think that this is a guy that can average 20 and 10 all year long. Victor Oladipo seemingly is starting to regain some of his form. He's averaging 22 a game right now. Even though I know there was an awkward offseason with them, him requesting a trade, other players openly aware that he had requested a trade, there was a mutual understanding that he was being shopped, but no one wanted him because he was damaged goods at the time. People didn't know if he had recovered from his injury. I still think there's a possibility he gets moved in the end just because the way that their roster's laid out right now they had the emergence of T.J. Warren and Malcolm Brogdon on their team, which are both great wing players. They might be able to move Oladipo for other assets and still not have much of a drop-off with those other two showing that they can pick up the production. Miles Turner's always been an underrated center. He's been a great defender this year, getting five blocks a game. Again, he's not going to average that all year, but he's always been a great rim protector. So if you look at this team, they have pretty good balance. They have guys that can consistently get you points. They have interior defenders. They have some guys that can switch out in the perimeter. High IQ players that can move the ball, like Malcolm Brogdon. They're a team that just, it seems that their top-end talent is probably not the best. And I don't really think that they have the type of player on their roster that can get them over the hump against some of those more elite teams in the East. But I definitely think they're going to be a lock for a five or six seed. Yeah, I don't think they have that top-end player either, but they do have three players with who we've already mentioned, Brogdon, Sabonis, and Oladipo, who are all averaging over 20 points a game. So if you're doing that consistently every single night, then you have some of your old players like Turner, Warren, 
and others picking up the rest of the slack, they can be competitive each game going forward. Very underrated team. Yep. I agree. So what's your thought on who I think you and I had as the breakout team in the East clearly doing what we thought they would in the Hawks? Honestly, I am not surprised by anything that I'm seeing from the Hawks. I thought that they were going to be great this year, and they have been great this year. Trey Young is doing exactly what you expected him to do. He's basically picking up right where he left off last season, averaging 34 points a game, 7.3 assists, and I think those assist numbers will even go up. But what's impressive is he's getting 7.3 assists but only turning it over three times a game. His assist-to-turnover ratio of 2.4 is actually excellent for a guy with the sort of usage that he has. I, I've been really impressed with him and his development. I know that there's always going to be, for the rest of his career, there's going to be talks about was it the smart move to make to swap Doncic for Trey Young? Was that the right move? But at this point, he's showing that at the very least, it wasn't a bad move. Maybe it wasn't the best move. Maybe you like Doncic better, but you can't say that the Hawks lost that deal. They definitely have a bona fide star and leader on this team. He is the old Steph Curry. He basically is doing what old Steph Curry used to do. And I've, I've honestly been extremely impressed with their coaching staff and how they've been able to integrate their new pieces and develop them as well. Cam Reddish, a player who last year had a lot of potential but really showed nothing, is actually a solid contributor this year. He's showing a little bit of that versatility on defense with that great length. His jump shot's finally starting to come around a little bit. And although he's not, you know, putting up star numbers by any means, He's being productive. John Collins is an excellent fit along Trey Young as an athletic forward that can space the floor, defend and finish, and run the pick and roll with. DeAndre Hunter has fit. Their lineup from top to bottom is great. And Bogdanovich, their big acquisition, isn't even starting. He's coming off the bench, and he's doing great. So it's like this team has a bench unit that comes in, and there's, like, almost no drop-off. They're doing great, and I think that they're probably going to keep this up all year long. The question is, how high can this team go? I'm going to pencil them in at number four. Yeah, I think the ceiling is still a question for me as well. Uh, the key thing that I'd like to see from the team, one from Trey Young and then from the rest of the team is my second one. From Trey, Trey Young, he has zero steals through the first four games. So he needs to pick it up defensively if they have any shot and that involves him getting some cookies from his people that he's playing against. Um, the other one is I don't think anybody on the team, at least that I'm seeing from a star player perspective, is averaging over 14 points per game. So Trey Young cannot be putting up 34 points per game and playing hero ball every single game. I know that he'd love to do that, but in order for those assist numbers to go up, in order for the team to make it in the event that Trey Young sprains an ankle or has some sort of injury that keeps him out for a couple games, uh, they need to have scoring offensive power like they expected from Gallinari, Bogdanovich, or one of these other guys like Collins uh, if they expect to make it into the playoffs, let alone be a four seed. So Trey Young, pick it up defensively. rest of the team needs to pick it up also offensively uh, in terms of points per game. Yeah, I agree with you there. The thing is, I think that Trey Young is the kind of player that, well, the zero steals is unacceptable. You, you can't just get zero steals and you're already four games into the season or three games into the season. But I think that everyone knows that Trey Young is always going to be a defensive liability. I don't think that Trey Young will ever be an elite defender. We're talking about a guy at point guard 
who is 6'1", 180 pounds, and I'm pretty sure that's generous. I don't think that he could switch on to anyone and be a solid defender. I think he's always going to be a liability on defense, if I'm being completely honest with you. It's just that he is so excellent on offense that he is able to cover up for his defensive liability. And I think that they've tried to surround him with players that move really well laterally, are very long, lengthy defenders to try to compensate for his weaknesses. But I do agree that they're going to need to have a guy step up into that secondary lead scoring role because it seems that right now it's very egalitarian offense. They're basically running a similar system as what they do with Harden where they kind of let Trey Young run the plays and they just basically allow the gravity that he has and the pull that he has on other defenders dictate where he's going to swing the ball. They just basically move it to the open guy because he's such a threat from out there. And up to this point, it's worked out. But when you get to the playoffs and teams start game planning for you a little more, they are going to need a guy to step up and be that second lead guy. The thing with them that's very interesting is they're a very young team. So you expect that they're probably going to have growth throughout the season. I wouldn't be surprised to see a guy like John Collins step into that secondary role and bring a scoring average up closer to 18, maybe even 20 points a game as the season goes on. Yeah, I expect it to be Collins. He bet on himself by not taking a contract extension upwards of 90 million. So I think he obviously wants to show out this year in his contract year. So I see him stepping into that role. But we talked a little bit about Stephen Curry and the similarities between him and Trey Young. Stephen Curry underratedly does pretty well on defense. He has averaged for his career 1.7 steals per game. Uh, this season, 1.8, so right at his average. So you're expecting he is larger though. Game. He is a bigger player. He's got more length. Not by much. I mean, he's still a small guy, but that just goes to show you how small Trey is. Trey Young is even smaller than a guy who we criticize for his length and size. I agree one steal a game is not much to ask for a guy like Trey Young. He should at least be able to have the kind of instincts to jump a passing lane every now and then and be able to predict where the ball might be and catch a steal. It just goes to show that his defensive IQ is not at the level that Steph Curry's is yet. But even Steph Curry, after he became a solid defender in terms of knowing where he had to be, was still picked on constantly in the playoffs and hunted and pick and rolls because they knew that the guy was not a defensive stopper. So I think that we're going to see that his whole career. Yeah, but I mean, even getting into small guys, you look at somebody like AI, who offensively stellar, uh, six feet tall, 165 for most of his career, averaging for the first like five seasons, he was averaging uh, 2.3, 2.4 steals per game. And so even small guys should be able to get those cookies. I'm not saying he, that he should be getting six blocks a game or trying to put up Dwayne Wade-like numbers on the blocking end, but he just needs to pickpocket some people and, and be able to at least have some semblance of defense. Uh, so moving on now to uh, some of the other young talent throughout the lead. So OKC, they're budding young stars. I feel like uh, Sam Presti is sitting in his war room and is like, I have been trying to tank for the last two seasons and nobody <laughs> lets me. I am getting rid of my talent and seemingly we still do good. I, am, I got rid of everybody this year. I took on a bloated contract from Al Horford. I took on uh, George Hill and just everybody's contributing. And I am one shot away from pretty much being undefeated this season. It is impossible for me to do bad, to do poorly. 
I think the Knicks wish they had that problem. The Knicks <laughs> probably should look into, instead of trying to make a splash free agency signing, they should just try to hire away Sam Presti. That may be what they need because he seemingly doesn't know how to do anything but win. The guy is still <laughs> ridiculous. incredible. The thing about it too is despite the fact that he's winning these games, he's still got more draft picks over the next couple of years than players. They don't even know what this roster is going to look like a year from now with all the picks they have. They have the most flexibility of any roster in the whole league. This roster can go anywhere with the amount of picks and young players and talent they have. It's just really hard to project what this team is going to be because it seems like right now it's just Play-Doh. I think that what they have is a team that has some good players. They have Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who's maybe a borderline all-star level talent. He could potentially pick it up more and take it to a next level. He's only 22 years old, has solid size at six foot six. He's an improved shooter. I mean, he possibly could be the franchise player they're looking for, but I think that they're just not sure about that yet. I think that the reason why they keep trying to tank is because they're hoping that they land a player in the draft or the acquisition that is a no questions asked franchise player that they can then finally start to shape this roster around and have some semblance of an idea of what they want to do with these picks and players. But I think up to this point, they're kind of just throwing out whatever they've got, seeing what sticks, and hoping that over the course of this next season, either Shea Gilgis Alexander shows that he is that franchise cornerstone, or they draft one in the next couple of drafts. Yeah, I, I just – it's ridiculous to see uh, them seemingly every year just trying to get rid of their talent and still doing well. Uh, you have Lugan Stortz, who is having an amazing season, along with uh, Shai, and those two seem like they're going to be the two cornerstone pieces for Sam Presti with their trove of draft picks. I still think that George Hill will get traded at the deadline and they will add another draft pick to that treasure chest. So um, Al Horford, I don't see getting traded at least this year, but I see him getting traded potentially next year in the off season and potentially then uh, probably having to shed a draft pick though. If Al Horford does well to close out the season, I'm sure teams will have a recency bias and decide to give the Thunder a second round pick to take on Horford's bloated contract. But then on top of that, Sam Presti obviously is a prudent man, very intelligent. So their cap space situation, oh, they even have Trevor Rees on the team. So Trevor Rees could also be flipped like he is every season for a draft they, pick. <laughs> he seemingly plays for every team at this point. But it's just crazy to me, just the list of players that Sam Presti has seen leave his team and he's still winning. This guy has seen Kevin Durant leave. Russell Westbrook leave and two MVPs leave. James still Harden. Winning. James Harden leave. Paul Three George. MVPs still winning. Paul George, Russell Westbrook, Serge Ibaka. We have Victor Oladipo, DeMontis Sabonis. I mean, you could draft Chris Paul. an all-star. Chris Paul. Danilo Gallinari. This is insane. You could, you could actually make an all-star team with the players that have left OKC in Sam Presti's tenure, and he's still competing. He's the the opposite of the tank model. He goes and basically shows the league that you can go out there, still put out a winning product and still get your picks. It's, it's incredible. He honestly should be in consideration 
for general manager of the year. I don't know how no one talks about him in that conversation. Yeah. Well, moving on now to a team that is unsurprisingly doing well, given their all-star firepower. Nikola Jokic is a triple-double machine with the Denver Nuggets. I think he has a chance to be the first big man to average a triple-double this season. And I think the Heat want to see Bam have some of the same passing ability that Jokic has. Bam typically is more of a just a handoff off a screen or finds an open man. Jokic is throwing passes behind the back, over his head, through his legs, through defenders' legs, seemingly whatever he wants to do from a passing standpoint while also still putting up amazing uh, scoring numbers. And clearly he's like 6'10", so he's going to be rebounding the ball heavily. What's been your impression with the Nuggets and Jokic? They're honestly doing pretty much exactly what I thought they would do. I thought that Jokic would average close to a triple-double this year, but the fact that he's averaging 13.5 assists, a center, 13.5 assists? Are you kidding me? He's I mean, doing yeah. what people, I think, thought Carl Anthony Towns would do. Like, taking exactly. over that mantle from LeBron as, like, a big man who can do it all. Yeah, the guy – I mean, he is he is averaging six turnovers a game, which is really high. That does need to come down. But he still has an assist-to-turnover ratio of greater than two to one for his center. And when you have such a high volume – I mean, he's still producing a PER of 30.38, which is seventh. The guy's number one in assists as a center. I think that the Miami Heat need to have Bam sit down and just watch Jokic film all day long because that's what they want him to be. They want him to be a guy – who can operate out of the post, from the perimeter, from the interior, and be able to play and make from any of those spots, and to also understand when to take advantage of his positioning. There's a lot of times where Bam will catch the ball in position to maybe do something on offense, and he just makes the wrong read, and he doesn't take advantage. The thing with Jokic that's so impressive is his decision-making. He seemingly always makes the right read. He doesn't take bad shots. He knows what his spots are, and he shoots confidently. He knows where his players are. He knows where his players' spots are, where they like to be, and where to find them best. It's just been extremely impressive. And after losing some of their pieces from last year, you had a guy like Jeremy Grant who played a very big role for them, end up leaving in free agency. You wonder if that was going to lead to any kind of drop-off on offense and defense for them, given everything he did. But there's been no drop-off. This team has been excellent. Michael Porter Jr. inserted into the starting lineup like he's always wanted, he's performing. I think that Michael Porter Jr. may even potentially make the all-star team this year if he can step it up and consistently average 20, 20 and 10 a game, which he's fully capable of doing. I think that he's probably the player with the highest ceiling on their roster, which is crazy to think given how well Jokic is playing. But we're talking about a guy who had the potential to be the number one overall pick, if not for that back injury that he had. So I think that the sky is the limit for this team. They have Bull Bull off the bench who hasn't even scratched the surface of what he might be. This team is deep. They have talent at the top. They have solid playmakers and role players. They have guys who on any given night, like Jamal Murray, can go for 30, 40, maybe even 50, like we saw in the playoffs. This team can compete with anybody. I think and that they, And they took RJ Hampton. They just seemingly <laughs> always take somebody who slips they in the draft. That's great. They dress then, so well. Yeah, and then they still have Paul Millsap, who, yeah, he's older now, but Paul Millsap is an all-star. Solid player, though. High IQ player. guy. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think that this team, the way that it's built, probably can compete with any team, whether East or West, and make it a competitive series in the playoffs. I think if you're looking at the Nuggets in a playoff series, you're going to need at least, at least six games to take them out, no matter who you are. Yeah. Well, the last one I want to get to, uh, Tyler Hero, the experiment in Miami. How do you think it's going with him as a starting point guard? To be honest with you, I was a big proponent of moving Tyler Hero to point guard, but I also did say that I thought that there might be a little bit of a learning curve at the beginning when this move would take place because it's a very big change in role for him. We have a guy who was coming off the bench who was basically a secondary ball handler who then showed a lot of promise in the playoffs as a primary ball handler and showed flashes of being able to potentially be an all-star level point guard. I still think that his highest ceiling and best long-term outlook is going to be at the point guard spot. And looking at his numbers right now, it's not like the guy's been a failure at point guard. He's averaging 15.7 points a game. He's averaging close to five assists with 2.7 turnovers. So it's not like the guy's turning it over like crazy and he can't find anybody. Yeah, you probably would have wanted to see him produce numbers a little closer to what he was doing in the playoffs, closer to that 25 and five. But we are seeing him produce. He's shooting 38.9% from three, hitting 2.1 threes per game. He's still shooting 87% from the free throw line. His efficiency numbers are still solid, minus the field goal percentage, which I expect to go up. He has to find the balance now between hunting for his shot and trying to get others involved. And when I see him play, it seems like that's the main thing going through his mind. I think that he's kind of been really aware of trying to not make mistakes and trying to limit making negative plays. And as a result, that's kind of limiting what was his greatest strength in the playoffs, which was his aggression and scoring ability. So I think that he just has to find a balance between still hunting and being aggressive and looking for his shot and then also getting others involved. If we look at his field goal attempts per game, they're actually only up by two shots. When you're elevated into the starting lineup and you're now averaging over 30 minutes a game, you probably would expect more than 13 field goal attempts a game from your starting point guard. So I expect that over the course of the season, he will improve and we're going to forget about this little rough patch the Heat are having. Yeah, I so last night with their game against the Bucks when they were clearly out of it after the first quarter, you saw Tyler Hero start to step it up and doing well because he realized that he could play carefree because they, he knew that they were going to lose. They were already down significantly after the first quarter. And so you saw that aggression come back. You saw him just spotting up, shooting a three, spotting up, shooting the running jumper, and he was making them because he had that sort of carefree, I'm the man attitude that you haven't seen in the first couple of games that the Heat have played. And I think that for him to get back to where he was, I think you were spot on. He's seeing right now a play develop the wrong way. He's seeing it, oh, I'm gonna make a bad pass here and then it's gonna get stolen. And then he throws a bad pass, it gets stolen and then they dunk it on the other end. He needs to instead see the floor one play ahead and see Bam cutting before Bam cuts, see uh, Duncan Robinson hit the corner before he hits the corner and put that pass on the money. Like you see LeBron, like you see Luca, like you see these other all-star point guard point forwards do. 
and he should have hopefully Spolstra, the video coordinator, Drogic, whoever else is pointing these things out to him, show him so that he's not thinking I might make a bad pass here because when you start to think that negative way, you're going to start producing those negative plays. And so he needs right. to think more of this is the play ahead and this is how I'm going to have success rather than this might be failure and then that manifesting itself into failure. Right. I think the thing with Hero, he came out and said it a little bit earlier. I mean, he, he said it about as politely as you could. In the Heat organization, you know that's an organization that does not tolerate any kind of people going out to the media to try to voice concerns or anything like that or trying to lobby for a role or playing time. The Heat definitely are the kind of team to not do that with. They obviously asked Hero a question, angling for a controversial comment, asking him if he felt like he was going to be a point guard. And he obviously responded that he felt like he would be a lead guard. He did not call himself a shooting guard because I think that deep down Hero really does want to be a point guard. I think that he is going to put in the work to become a great point guard because his work ethic has never been a question. And I think that's a position that he wants to play, but he's just so nervous about getting that position taken from him. And maybe the Heat saying, you know what, maybe Hero at point guard isn't the right move. Maybe we should move him back to his old role. He's so concerned about that that he's limiting himself with timidness. He has to be aggressive. And it's not like he's making a ton of turnovers. Again, he is averaging five assists a game and 2.7 turnovers. So it's not like he's been terrible with his decision-making. For me, it's more he's just been a little bit too inactive. There are passes. It's not like he makes the bad pass. It's just that he doesn't make the pass at all. Or that in, not that he takes a bad shot, but that he doesn't take the shot at all. It's that he's too worried about the play turning out poorly and then having a negative play develop and then having that potentially reflect poorly on his ability to be a lead guard. I think that he's just got to be aggressive, carefree, and realize, look, I'm a, I'm a second-year guy, not even 21 yet, playing a new position in a starting role. I'm, I'm going to have some turnovers occasionally from time to time, but he's got to take some risks because that is the kind of player that he is. He takes risks. He's flashy. He's aggressive. He's got to learn how to still be an aggressive scorer while still being able to distribute the ball. And I think that over time he will get there. And honestly, right now, I think the biggest problem with the Heat is really Bam Adebayo, who is their primary distributor. And he's averaging right now more turnovers than he is assists. So I don't really think that the reason why the Heat are struggling at the moment is really as much because of Hero. It's more because of Bam, I think. And I don't, I don't expect Bam to average 3.3 assists and five turnovers a game all year long. He's a guy who's really hard on himself, also a great work ethic guy, and I think that he'll straighten it out. This would be a massive regression if Bam were to drop off to these numbers after what he did last year. So I do think that when Bam improves a little bit more and starts distributing the ball better on his end, that'll help the entire offense flow better, and Hero will benefit as well. So I do expect him to straighten this out later on in the season. I'm not surprised to see him taking his lumps right now, but I'm not concerned. I really do think they'll figure this out. Yeah, and I mean, you still have the new experiment with Hero, so that's probably it, impacting Bam's play a little bit as well. Uh, but also, it's exciting to see, and hopefully Hero can pull it out so that he is a good point guard in this league. If Hero is in the starting lineup, and then you assume, obviously, Duncan Robinson, Jimmy Butler, Bam, 
and then a Myers Leonard or even Precious, the shortest guy in that lineup would be Hero at 6'5". That is a very tall lineup that is dangerous from many areas on the floor. So it's it, it would be difficult, especially with the heat style of play and putting mm-hmm. an emphasis on defense to really the other penetrate. Thing too, yeah, I, I agree with that. The, the other thing, too, with the heat is uh, the heat up to this point, I, under, I understand that the heat are a team that likes to move the ball around a lot. And Eric Spolster will say it himself. He doesn't think that this is a team that is like a Harden-esque team where there's going to be a guy that's going to get you your 30 every game. There might be a different guy who's the leading scorer five nights in a row with a team like the Heat. But the thing is, they have to try to, I think, force the issue a little bit more with the Tyler Hero Bam pick and roll. They haven't really run too many Tyler Hero Bam pick and rolls yet. And I don't know why, because I think that it would do wonders for their offense. You have Tyler Hero and Bam Adebayo, who are seemingly going to be together for the long haul for a while. They both have complementary skill sets. You have a guy who can hit from three-point range, mid-range, hit your floaters, layups, difficult shots, penetrating. He has shown the ability to be able to make the right read and pass out of the pick and roll. We saw it in the playoffs, and we've seen it in flashes now early in this season. And when you have a guy running the pick and roll with you that can do all three of those things and a center – that's the guy setting the screen who can also pass, hit from 15 and attack. You basically have a wide open offense, similar to what Draymond Green and Steph Curry had when they would run those high pick and rolls. When you had Draymond Green at the fulcrum, if they collapsed on Curry, you dump it down to Draymond and allow him to make the next read. Do you attack or pass to the next open guy? I don't know why the Heat can't just reproduce that. They have the shooters, they have the passers, they have the personnel. And I know that they want to have this egalitarian spread out offense, but they have to start forcing the issue a little bit more with that Tyler Hero band pick and roll. That is going to be, I think, huge for their offense. Yeah, I agree. So moving Speaking on. Of point guards, actually, before, before we move on, one more little thing. We almost glossed over this team, and I, I do want to give them their credit. Speaking of point guards and young talent, the Sacramento Kings. The Sacramento Kings are three and one right now. And De'Aaron Fox is averaging 20.2 points a game. He just got his big payday, 6.8 assists per game, 3.5 turnovers a game. Assisted turnover ratio is almost two, two to one. So that's pretty solid. I mean, the guy plays solid defense. He's not an elite defender, but he's solid. And overall, they've been performing pretty well. Marvin Bagley has actually underachieved compared to what most of us would think. And they're still out here winning games. And a player that I've been a huge fan of, I thought there might be an issue actually when they drafted him, Tyrese Halliburton. I thought that there might be a little bit of overlap with him and Darren Fox. I thought maybe that was even a red flag for Darren Fox and that might meant that they were looking to move him, but then they go and re-up and sign him. So I guess they're planning on keeping both those guys. And it seemingly is kind of working out. Tyrese Halliburton has looked pretty good as a rookie in his first couple of games with an efficiency of 20.23 PER. I mean, he's distributing the ball like a guy who's been in the league longer than this. He's averaging 5.3 assists per game, but the crazy part is only 0.8 turnovers per game. He actually has a better assist to turnover ratio than Darren Fox or almost anyone else in the NBA. So, and he's also knocking it down from deep. He's six foot five, has plus size has the ability to potentially switch out and guard some undersized twos. Tyrese Halliburton may even have a higher ceiling than Darren Fox. This is a team that has some nice young talent. 
Buddy Heald still knocking down his jumpers. They end up losing Bogdanovich, but they're seemingly not having any kind of drop-off. This team may sneakily be able to make the playoffs this year. They have a nice little roster, and I, I can't believe we're talking about the Kings in any sort of positive or relevant light, but here we are. The Kings might actually make the playoffs this year. Yeah, I agree. They've been exciting to watch and clearly a very young team, obviously with a lot of good pieces and adding Halliburton. I think he had a great preseason as one of the rookies uh, going into his new team. So um, they're, they're solid, top to bottom. They have a good bench. They have some experienced guys who I think have been thrown to the wayside with Hassan Whiteside, Jabari Parker, Glenn Robinson III. Um, so if those guys can pick it up in the late stages of their career. I mean, Hassan Whiteside, it's always really been an attitude issue. I think he's been a good player at, at every stop. I think last year he led the lead, league in blocks with over two blocks per game. So you expect him to be doing well defensively, um, but hopefully, you know, they do well. I think it's also a credit, a testament to Luke Walton coming from, I think, his dream job with the Lakers, getting fired after two seasons and now being with the Kings. Uh, him sticking with it, sticking with this young roster this through this rebuild and uh, doing well with Holmes, Badgley, uh, De'Aaron Fox. I think shifting Badgley now to play more of the four and five this season, which has been an experiment that is playing uh, and working out well for them, um, just goes to show good coaching from him. Yeah, I've been really impressed with them. All right, so moving on now, want to go to our second segment of plead their case. This time, you'll be asking me some of the different scenarios and I will have to plead their case as if I were them or their defending lawyer. All right, sounds good. Let's get it. After an impressive playoff run to the finals, the Miami Heat allowed a league record 29 threes in a 47-point loss to the rival Bucks. They literally had every single player on their whole roster from top to bottom make a three-pointer, except for Giannis. Giannis actually only had nine points, still won by 47, 29 three-pointers made. Are the Miami Heat due for a championship hangover, or was this just a one-time deal? Plead their case. Yeah, so I'm going to start off with this headline. The Heat have locked themselves in for the championship this year with this loss. So reason why, 2006 – they allowed the Suns to win with a 46-point deficit and a trip to Blowout City. And now we remember what happened in the 2006 playoffs. Dwayne Wade came, had his breakout showing. Shaq won his fourth title, this time without Kobe. And the Heat overall won. The Heat have never allowed a point uh, loss greater than 46 until this 47-point blowout. Aside from that, they have not allowed a 40-point loss as well. So the only time in history that they've allowed a loss greater or as great as this one was against those Suns, and then they won the championship. So I think this is a kick in the butt for them, what they needed. If you watch the rest of the game, they didn't play Drogic. They didn't play Agadala. Obviously, Jimmy Butler sat out. They didn't play any of their vets. Myers Leonard got zero, like two minutes for the game. They were playing all of the young guys. You saw KZ finally get in there. You saw Kendrick Nunn play a significant chunk of minutes. Obviously, Tyler, Tyler Hero played about 33, 34 minutes. So I think this was a, all right, we're going to get different looks in. We're going to see how the team looks. We don't really care about the score anymore. Um, so 
it was a great chance to see the production that Precious, KZ, Tyler, Duncan, all these guys could have playing with one another. Um, but also, I'm sure that Jimmy, UD, Spolstra, I'm sure Pat Riley got into that locker room afterwards and was like, I never want to see this again. Um, yeah, I so agree. I think it's a great experience for the young guys to get minutes. I think it's a great experience to get handed uh, like they did last night and have a chance now to um, show that they're not going to have that happen again tonight in their back-to-back -back series with the Bucks. Um, but overall, I think this is just a, a typical game that they're going to experience, and it's good to have it now early in the season so that they can play with this chip for the rest of the year. Yeah, I have to agree with you there. I think that this is a team that their DNA has always been defense first, defense, defense, defense. I feel really bad for them for what's going to happen at their next practice because the way that Spolster's reputation is after losses like these, he makes sure that players never, ever want to lose like that again because he makes them pay for it in practice. But I agree with you. They had the leader of their team, Jimmy Butler, sit. It seems like Bam Adebayo is a different player when – Butler sits and when Butler plays it's like he becomes only a shade of himself when Butler isn't there I don't understand why it is that there's such a big drop off when he sits but I agree with you I think that this is going to be a major wake-up call it's still early in the season and I, I think it's better for them to get this loss out of the way now than you know having a 47 point loss halfway through the season where now you have to question should we have traded for James Harden hmm but I agree with you but moving on to the next one Daryl Morey find $50,000 for a congratulatory tweet acknowledging James Harden's accomplishment of breaking the Rockets franchise assist record. According to him, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't tampering. Apparently it was quote, an automated, an automated tweet bot, unquote. That was the reason for the tweet. Apparently he never actually did it himself. He says it was a tweet bot. Plead their case. Was this tampering? I mean, Daryl Moore is a busy guy. So given that he's a busy guy, I'm sure that he has a tweet bot. I'm sure that he has bots for most of the things in his life. I'm sure he has a Roomba that helps vacuum everything at his house. So realistically, you know, nothing to make of it. It's just a, a, a former GM congratulating his former player that he brought in to that team, really surrounded him with championship pieces. He just wanted to remind him, uh, you know, how great he is and how thankful he was uh, for wanting uh, or, or doing what he did. Nothing, nothing to see there. You know, it's, it's nothing. Um, nothing at all. See, me personally, I, I would like to believe that it was just nothing, but Daryl Morey does have a history with controversial tweets. The guy thought he might almost lose his job forever in the NBA over the controversial China tweet. So it's not the first time that Daryl Morey has gotten in the hot water for his tweets. He also is now the general manager of the 76ers, a team that has been rumored all season long, all off season to be one of the front runners to land James Harden, the player which he formerly acquired on the Rockets. And I think that maybe Daryl Morey is kind of seeing the roster that he's got. He's seen a couple practices, kind of sees what he has, probably realizes, look, Ben Simmons is what he is. Joel Embiid is what he is. They're both great players, but they're not the ideal fit for one another. They're just not. I don't know how they don't, how they don't see that. And I think that he was probably just trying to stoke the fire a little bit 
to reignite that hardened to Philly trade, especially now that he's maybe seen Christian Wood put up some numbers, maybe thinking, dang, maybe the Rockets aren't going to get rid of him anymore. Let's uh, put out this tweet, stoke the fire a little bit. What's 50K to Daryl Morey? It's basically a slap on the wrist. So even if it was tampering, small price to pay if you can get yourself a guy to pair with Embiid that's going to give you consistently 30 points and 10 assists every game. So I think there's probably a little bit more to it than that. But moving on to the next one, Kelly Oubre Jr., a player who seemingly has solid potential and was projected by you and many others to be an under-the-radar, high-impact addition to the Warriors. He has now, his fourth game into the season, hit his first three-pointer. He is currently shooting one for 18 on three-point attempts. Is Kelly Oubre Jr. in the middle of a shooting slump and due to breakout, or is this who he is, and should the Warriors adjust their game plan to reflect his shooting deficiencies, plead their case? Well, he was one for four last game, so that's an improvement from the first couple. Um, <laughs> the, but I think the bigger story here isn't a Kelly Oubre problem. I think it's a Warriors problem. And if you look at the full stats for the Warriors game, the recipe has been low assists, low shooting percentage, and those two things combined to me speak to poor shot selection. And how do you get poor shot selection? You're not moving around the ball well. And if Steph is the only person who is making assists the last couple of games, he put up six assists per game, and that was the highest total for each of those games. So their last game really is the first game they should have won because they were a prayer shot from Steph's brother-in-law, Damian Lee, from not winning against the Bulls. And they finally did well, obviously, against the uh, Detroit Pistons, who top to bottom just aren't a good team. So they should be probably one and three right now. And the only reason they're not is for that prayer shot and one of the few threes that anyone other than Steph has made. So I think that the overall game plan needs to change for the Warriors. They've talked about simplifying things and just getting back to basics for the rest of the people on their roster. I think they're hurting without Draymond out there, but this just, it, in 2014, 2015, 2016, the Warrior heydays, you saw this free-flowing movement of the ball. Everybody's making the extra pass. Sometimes they were passing too much, and people were just giving up shots to give their teammates looks. You're not seeing that at all. You have Steph and Steve Kerr shaking their head when somebody like Oubre goes ISO and dribbles through six defenders and doesn't end up actually passing the ball for a good shot to then miss a runner and not have the only thing he seemingly makes, which is a dunk attempt. So I think that the Warriors just need to have better schemes, have better passing overall, and they should be aiming for every game 35 assists. It's ridiculous to think about, and it's way too high of a total, but they need to have that in the back of their mind that we need to shoot for the moon in terms of assist numbers because Without that, they're going to continue to meddle around the 20-ish mark. They're going to continue to underperform by not having good shot selection, and they're going to continue to have people like Oubre, like Damian Lee, like um, Eric Paschal, like all these other guys on the team, Wiggins, who are supposed to be making threes or maybe chucking up good uh, mid-range shots with a defender right in their face because somebody's playing iso ball the entire time. So it's allowing defenders to stick onto their guys, uh, just the, the entire defensive play. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I'm actually going to go ahead and say it right now. I'm thinking that the Warriors are definitely missing the playoffs this year. I just don't think what they have is fixable. I think that this team is broken. I think that the roster is currently constructed, has no shot of running any sort of semblance of a positive offense. I agree with what you're saying. The recipe is the poor assist numbers and the poor shooting percentages. But the thing is, it's larger than just moving the ball more and trying to get better shots and taking better shot selection. Because in reality, they are getting open looks too. They're just not knocking them down. Part of the reason why they get no ball movement and they're shooting so poorly is because teams are basically daring them to shoot the ball. They're clogging the lane. They're backing off Wiggins and Oubre because they're, they're basically saying, look, you're, you're a non-shooter. You might make this one right here, but I'd rather you take this 10 times out of 10 because you're probably going to end up missing 9 out of 10 the way that we're going right now. And I think that teams know that. And there's really nothing that they can do about it. This is a team that success was predicated on running a very high IQ, complex offense where you had several players that all of them knew how to project a play two and three plays ahead where they knew if they received the ball, they already had in their mind what the next one and two reads after that were going to be if the look they were trying to get wasn't there. You have a, a team right now largely with low IQ players, except for Stephen Curry and Draymond Green, who isn't even playing. You can't expect that Andrew Wiggins and Kelly Oubre all of a sudden at this point in their career are going to become high IQ basketball players. If we look at most players traditionally, the guys who come in as low IQ guys generally stay that way. Not to say that you can't be a low IQ player and still put up numbers and be successful. You can still find a system that maybe will work, but the warrior system isn't that system. The warrior system is one that does need that high IQ ball movement and passing to take advantage of Steph Curry's greatest talent and to take care of Clay Thompson's greatest talent, even though he's not playing right now. But I just don't think that their, their roster is currently constructed as even fixable and probably are going to be heading for the lottery again. Moving on to the next one. I know we talked about it a little bit earlier, but the Orlando Magic are actually off to the best start in franchise history at 4-0. Unlike some of the other teams that are overachieving, like the Cavaliers, the Orlando Magic actually maybe have a chance of making the playoffs after most people, including myself, projected them to miss the playoffs. Are the Magic just overachieving in the early part of the season, or is this a team that legitimately has a chance to make the playoffs? Plead their case. Yeah, I think we talked about this earlier. I think given the parity in the NBA, you expect that the Magic will come back down to earth eventually, but they look great as a team right now. It's not just one person like Trey Young carrying the entire team, and if that person goes out, then the entire semblance of uh, the team is going to go out the window. Um, you have multiple contributors giving you double-digit points per game, uh, upwards of 15, 16, 17 points per game for all of those people. So if Fultz and Ross continue to experience their breakout years or their best years of their career. Cole Anthony has come in and immediately contributed on that team. Uh, I think he's leading the team in assists. And then you have Vucevic, who's a double-double machine, and Aaron Gordon, who's not really doing much in regressing continually. If he picks it up slightly, Evan Fournier is also giving you uh, close to 20 points per game. So, Every single person on any given night can help that team out. 
So I think they're going to continue to do well throughout the season. I think Steve Clifford is a good coach. So I see them making the playoffs, although it will be at a lower seed. And they, I don't think they're going to continue this undefeated 4-0 uh, sort of trajectory. Yeah, for me personally, I'm still going to pick them to miss the playoffs. I just have a hard time believing that they're going to have players like Terrence Ross be able to sustainably produce at that level. I don't believe in Aaron Gordon. I don't think that Markel Fultz is going to be able to be the difference maker that he is right now all season long when teams start to game plan a little bit more for him. I think he's catching a lot of people by surprise because a lot of people left him for dead. But I do expect this team to eventually miss it. But I can see why you might think that they might sneak in there. But on to the next one. Bronny James has not yet made it to the league, but he's already making headlines for supposedly sliding into renowned NBA groupie Larsa Pippen's DMs. LeBron Sr. and his wife have since vehemently denied the allegations and have come out basically saying there's no way in hell. Stop talking about this. This is disgusting. And Bronny James is out here saying that he was simply liking one of his friend's mother's photos. There has not yet been a comment from Malik Beasley on the matter as he is currently dealing with bigger fish as he's now dealing with some uh, legal allegations for possession of unregistered weapons, drug possession, what have you. This may not be the biggest thing on his agenda, but was Bronny James just innocently liking a photo or was he maybe trying to capitalize on the fact that Malik Beasley is not as attentive these days? Plead his case. I mean, I think to a degree, this is kind of disgusting that people are just making these assumptions. Um, I think <laughs> people need to relax. Uh, my man was just liking a photo. There are way too many people that get into the, oh, wow, this person liked this girl's photo. That must mean that they have twins on the way. Or with teams, you have a player who follows, unfollows, likes a post from a team, and that means that James Harden is now going to the Thunder. Or that means that Jimmy Butler is now leaving the Heat to go to the Portland Trailblazers because he likes Derek Jones Jr. throwing down a vicious slam. Like, just this day and age of social media, people are way too caught up in the, oh my God, this person liked or retweeted this person. So that means they're either throwing shade or actually really like this person or now are trying to slide in their DMs. Like, it's ridiculous, man. It's people play too much into the hype train. Um, but I will say Malik Beasley is seemingly doing well this season. Your Florida State alum is doing pretty, pretty well on the Timberwolves, averaging about 20 points a game. And the Timberwolves are also doing pretty well, which Glenn Taylor must be listening to this podcast saying, I don't know what these guys are talking about. I think the team's going to make the playoffs. So, Yeah, uh, for me, I mean, Malik Beasley, look, he is, he is getting his 17 points a game, but he is doing it on like 17 shots a game. So... Hey, Derrick Rose won an MVP when he was throwing up about as many shots as the U.S. points, so. That's, that's true. That's true. Maybe it just depends on the narrative that you have. But um, I, I just think that this also serves as a lesson to Bronny. And I think that LeBron needs to sit his son down and talk to him and basically explain to him, look, you are a guy who hasn't even made it to the league yet, but this is what you're going to have to be used to. Tweets likes, social media things can be taken out of context all the time, and it's going to continue to happen in his career. He has to start right now at an early age to start thinking about how certain things that he does on social media may be interpreted by other people. Yes, it's possible that he was just simply 
liking her photo. And a lot of times a like doesn't mean anything. It's true. But sometimes it does mean something. Let's be real. I'm not going to say that I haven't thrown out some likes that have meant something a little more than just a like before. And I'm sure you have as well. So that's not always the case. But sometimes it is. I think if you're LeBron James Sr., you sit Bronny down and you basically tell him, listen, man, you don't need any sort of negative publicity or distraction when you get into the league. You don't have to put yourself in this position. Just think about this a play ahead. You have a person who is known to be an NBA life ruiner and home wrecker. And if you make any sort of connection with her, basketball player, Larsa Pippen, what are people going to say? The same storyline that always revolves around it because that's what she's known for. That's what she does. She's an NBA groupie. So just don't, don't put yourself in a position where you're going to be associated with that. I know it's not a big deal now. The kid's just in high school. Who cares? But when he gets to the league, it's little distractions like these when you're trying to compete for a championship that you don't want going into the locker room. I remember when James Harden was having his brief stint with Khloe Kardashian his own locker room, all the players were like, James, please do not bring this girl around. We do not want all the cameras and all the extra crap around our team. Like we are trying to focus on the season. We don't need the E Hollywood drama and all the extra bullshit. We're, we're trying to just win a, win a championship here. And I think that this maybe is a good lesson for him to take with him going forward that social media is a bunch of speculation and rumors and drama but it's easily avoidable. And if you can avoid a connection with maybe a less desirable figure around the league, you probably just should for the sake of avoiding distractions. Yeah, and I, I mean, even thinking about LeBron, the only story that I heard about LeBron involving another celebrity that was drama oriented was when Rihanna, like 10 years ago, wrote 23 in sunscreen on her stomach and put like a crown or something to represent her fandom for LeBron and Savannah James being pissed about that. And that was the only thing I had ever heard about LeBron in a negative light on social media. And you think about I don't LeBron- think he even responded to that. I don't right. think he even responded to that. The guy, I'll give it to LeBron. He is a master at manipulating the media. And basically he is the kind of guy who will put out there what he wants you to see of him. He's a great job of a lot of times the media tries to dictate what the narrative is and tries to form your perception or image about a player. That's the media's job. LeBron is really great at putting out the image that he wants you to see and making the media project the image that he wants you to see. Not necessarily that LeBron is the guy that you're seeing on TV or on interviews. I, I doubt very much that LeBron is the guy that he presents himself as a lot of the time, but he is an expert at handling himself like a professional and avoiding pitfalls like these. And I think that he would do well to talk to Bronny James, who probably at some point will be bound for the NBA and teaching him how to handle the media in a similar fashion. Yeah, I see LeBron in the same light that I see Derek Jeter of just two guys who at various points in their career, or even LeBron now, are at the tops of their games, being nominated for every award, whether it's directly sports related or indirectly sports related. and just staying out of the tabloids and Derek Jeter was single the entire time he was with the Yankees and 
Yeah, there are rumors of who he may have been with or what person he might have been dating, but he made everybody sign an NDA so that nothing slipped out and nothing leaked out and kept everything real tight in terms of what you're talking about, the media and how he was portrayed. And so you have an image and it can be tarnished immediately regardless of how good of a player you are or not. And based on that narrative that you create for yourself, you can either get a max contract at the age of 37 like LeBron, or you can be scraping the bottom of the barrel at age 30 because you sent out the wrong tweet or you were with the wrong person. So right. I think I agree with that. I think that those compounding variables have something to do with how teams and the public may look at you uh, and whether or not you're a role model citizen or at least you portray yourself to be. So I agree with you that LeBron needs to sit down with Bronny especially at this very pivotal juncture in his life when he is now 14, 15 years old. Um, and just say, what you do now will impact you when you're my age. So do with that what you may. I agree with that. And that's about it for us today. The Court of Opinion coming to you live from vacation from 6.30 a.m., sometimes 12.30 p.m. We're always coming to you with the best opinions we are the hardest working team in sports. And that opinion is valid. Well, and follow us for more updates on Courts of Opinion on Twitter. Follow this podcast, like it, rate us, review us, reply to us on Twitter if you have any opinions as well. And we will get back to you on those. So with that, I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. Court is adjourned. <laughs>